Well, one thing about uh, being a Christian, one of the practices of being a Christian, is that um, we serve other people, and we develop uh, what's usually called a servant mindset. We get into this mode of, okay, I'm going to help other people. I'm going to start not just thinking about myself, but I'm going to start serving others. And we want to help, we want to care, we want to do what we can to uh, make other people's lives easier. And Jesus was the perfect example of what this looked like, not only in his just earthly life of the way he cared for people and had compassion and served other people, but he also uh, did the ultimate thing of laying down his life in love on our behalf on the cross. Uh, So Jesus did many things to serve other people. And sometimes we can struggle with helping others. Uh, Maybe we think, you know, this is uh, inconvenient, this is uncomfortable, or I don't have time for this, you know, I have enough problems of my own. And like, oh, they should be able to figure this out and kind of get their own life together. And we maybe would think, you know, maybe I feel unqualified or I don't have the time or energy, or we just don't feel like it. I just don't want to do this. There's something else I want to do. Um, But part of growing as a Christian is learning to be uh, less selfish and more caring and uh, concern for others. But I think even what we struggle with more is not giving help, uh, but asking for help. And for many of us, uh, the last thing we would want to do is ask someone for help. Is we caught asking, saying, hey, I need help with this thing. Even if our life is a wreck and unmanageable, we still will avoid asking for help. Even if we have no idea how we're going to pay the next bill, we'll still avoid asking for help. And there's those surveys, you've probably heard them, that ask, you know, what is your number one fear? And usually, uh, death is second, and public speaking is first. But, you know, if I was to, you know, guess, and I don't think this is true at all, but I think asking for help would maybe be third of the thing that we're most afraid of. And so, you know, think about this. If you had to choose between giving help and asking for help, which one would you choose? Which one comes most naturally to you? Probably giving help and not asking for help. But I want to ask this question for us to think about a bit on the whiteboard. So what is it about asking for help that we find so difficult? I think maybe even a deeper question is, what are we admitting to people when we ask for help? So what is it about asking for help that we find so difficult? And what are we admitting to people when we ask for help? So let's put some things on our whiteboard. Why is it so difficult for us to ask for help? So it shows weakness. I heard another person. Weakness? Oh, two for plus, plus one. Woo. <laughs> two for showing weakness, okay? <laughs> disappointment to our pioneer ancestors, okay? I'll put disappointment down. the culture, so it's kind of in our culture we have a hard time, okay? Yeah, so, okay, so it's cultural, cultural to be independent. Yep, what other reasons do we have trouble asking for help? Fear that they'll say no and they will be wrong. Okay. Fear they'll say no. Which leads to embarrassment. Don't want to look needy. Don't want to look needy. Okay, any other reasons? 
difficult to ask for help? Is he in control? Okay. I do it myself. Want to be in control. Yeah, that's something a toddler begins saying, right? Which is a good thing, that they're learning how to do things on their own. It's a, that's a healthy thing. Don't want to be a burden. Don't want to be a burden, okay? I need a taller thing. This is like hurting my back. Okay? We don't want to admit we're incomplete or inadequate. Okay? So it admits incomplete or inadequate. Okay? Last one, if somebody had one on the tip of their tongue. Okay? So yeah, these are reasons that we uh, have difficulty asking for help and things that we would be admitting if we did ask for help. And there's a, a CNBC article that was talking about the pandemic and how there's people, most people need a lot more help right now. Uh, but then it also listed psychological reasons behind um, why we have such a difficulty asking for help. And so it's going to line up with some of the things we said. So here's what they listed. It makes people feel uneasy because it requires surrendering control. Uh, people fear being perceived as needy. We don't want to be ashamed of our situation or come across as incompetent, so we work really hard so others don't see us this way. Plus, we feel that others have their own worries to take care of, so ours aren't significant. Some people are afraid they'll be shunned or rejected if they ask for help, so... They make a lot of excuses for not requesting the help they need. So on that list I just said, uh, can you relate to any of those? Or can you relate to any of these things that you've listed? Like maybe there's something in your life right now you're like, it'd be really great to have some help on this. But these things keep you from asking for that help. And if, we had to, if you had to choose between giving help and asking for help as a sign of Christian maturity, which one would you say it is? That Christian maturity means I'm asking for help, or Christian maturity means I'm giving help. And both are marks of Christian maturity, of course, but I think asking for help is a more fundamental and kind of foundational thing that is a marker of Christian maturity. And the reason this is so important is because of the degree to which we're willing to ask for help from God or other people will determine our spiritual health. As we continue this series in the Gospel according to Luke, um, called To Seek and to Save, uh, in today's passage, Jesus gives his inaugural sermon. You know, the president, when our, we have a president and they're beginning their new term, we have inauguration day and they give this inaugural speech, uh, kind of saying, like, you know, this is kind of my priorities, my values, and the things, my vision for the future. And Jesus does the same thing. And as we hear Jesus' sermon, we'll see the kind of people that will get excited about his message. And in short, the people uh, who know they need help will be excited about his message. People who are able to see and admit their neediness, their weaknesses, their failures, their shortcomings, their sin. People who have made a mess out of their lives and who know that they've fallen short. These are the people that will get excited about what Jesus is saying. It will sound like good news to them. And so if you want to turn to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And actually, there will be a point in the sermon where I'm going to ask you to... Uh, write something down, actually draw something. So if you don't have a bulletin or if you don't have a piece of paper or pen, you can grab one on the table back there, and so I encourage you to do that. Um, and so think about yourself. How good are you, at, are you at asking for help? Are you able to admit to people when you need help? Are you able to see, allow yourself to be seen as needy before others, as needy before God? Can you admit your sins to another person? 
And you know, think about it. When was the last time you asked for help? When was the last time you did that? For some of us, it might be hard to even say when the last time we asked for help is. You know, well, what? I don't know. When was that? Like you know, a month ago? I don't know. Last year? You know, do you see yourself as needing God's help? And there's also, yeah, I think, I forgot to mention, there's another picture over there if you want to grab that too. So let's begin looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And when Jesus launched his public ministry, he was quite popular. His base of operations um, was in the region of Galilee. And people were impressed with his teaching. He was praised by people, and this report about him was just spreading throughout the land. And his method was to teach people in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And this is what he did when he came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he grew up. And verse 16 tells us it was his custom to go to the synagogue. And so he could be saying, you know, Jesus throughout his life on the Sabbath day would go uh, to the synagogue, but also as his ministry practice well, not just his personal kind of devotional practice, but his personal ministry practice too. He was a regular attendee of the synagogue. And you may be wondering what a synagogue is. Uh, and the synagogue was a Jewish meeting hall uh, for teaching and for prayer, and that picture uh, on the table is of a, that's not one that's, that is an original first, it isn't a first century synagogue, it was reconstructed in Nazareth to show, uh, there's like this uh, area in Nazareth called like uh, the Nazareth, Nazareth Village, and they set it up so it would be like, this is what it would feel like to be in first century Nazareth, and they reconstructed the synagogue of what it would look like, and so you can see there um, that there are like these kind of tiered seatings. Um, where people would sit around in a circle on those and be able to all see each other, um, listen to each other. And there's that little seat there, the person uh, was probably near where the person would have sat down. And there would be this cabinet in the corner uh, where there'd be uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the, our Old Testament. And that's where the scrolls would be kept. And the, the use of the synagogues probably began in, uh, during the Babylonian captivity when the people were taken into exile. They no longer had the temple. So it's like, how do we connect with God. Where do we meet now? We don't have the temple. So the synagogues probably arose out of that. And they continued um, through the, during the Roman Empire. The Jews were spread around all over the place in the Roman Empire. And so they kept using synagogues to be able to connect back with the temple and be able to meet, worship, and pray. And the description of what happens in uh, Jesus' visit in Luke 4 is actually the earliest description we have uh, from all historical records of what a synagogue uh, service looked like. And we have some later descriptions. You know, it's pretty brief in Luke chapter 4. We have some later descriptions, and it's like, okay, it's not really sure if those traditions came out of the first century, if they you know, went back that far, but if they did, some of the things that they would have done were um, they would have recited the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy 6. You shall love you know, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and so that's the Shema. Uh, they would have prayers, there would be a reading from the law, the first five books of the Bible, there would be a reading from the prophets, and then there would be teaching or interpretation of the passages, and then at the end, a benediction. And the readings from the Old Testament would be in Hebrew, and then they would get translated into Aramaic, because not, everyone could, not all the Jewish people were speaking Hebrew in a fluent way, but Aramaic was more of a common language. And the attendant would take the scroll out of the cabinet, uh, give it to the person who's going to read, or they would read it, and then they would go and put it back in the cabinet, uh, that were restored. And after this, after it was read, an invitation would be given to any qualified male uh, to be able to interpret it or to teach on it. And it was customary for the readings to be done um, standing, and then the, whoever was going to teach on it would go and they would sit down. And so we see some of these details and some of these elements in Luke chapter 4. So look at verse 16. It says this. 
And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So apparently Jesus served as the reader on this occasion, and it's kind of clear that Jesus, we already saw, like his news about him had spread all over, and so when you're sitting in the synagogue, you kind of know the people that are qualified to be able to stand up and do the interpretation, and Jesus was one of those qualified people that people have heard about him. And the scroll of the prophet uh, Isaiah was handed to him, and he stands up to read it, and he unrolls it and found a, spe- a specific place in the scroll. And uh, kind of the bulk of the scroll will be held in your left hand. Hebrew uh, goes from right to left instead of left to right, so the big part will be held in your left hand, and then the, you'll be unrolling it with this hand. And they would typically be about 9 to 11 inches high, it's probably 9 to 11 inches, and could be 20 uh, to 30 feet in length depending on the size of the, the work that contained. And the Isaiah scroll that Jesus reads from Isaiah, and there was an Isaiah scroll found when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the previous century, and it was 35 feet in length, all rolled up. And so, actually, uh, I don't know how long ago, I, I saved this like a year or two ago, thinking about this passage, like if I ever preach this passage, I'm going to have a little scroll that I can roll. Now this is way, this is like uh, 29 inches, so you know, 11 9 to 11 would be this big. So it'd be like this. So he's unrolling it like this. He sees the text. That's a chunk that fell out of it. And he'd be unrolling it so that he could... Uh, let's get rid of that. He'd be unrolling it so that he could you know, read it. But he unrolls it so he finds the place. You know, how long did that take <laughs> to unroll the thing? But then it could probably be rolled up on this side as well. So that's what it would look like. And so then after, he, he reads Isaiah 61 through 2. Uh, and then he leaves out one line, but then it gets, you know, handed back. He rolls it back up, so everyone's, you know, he reads this passage, and then everyone's watching him, like, roll it back up, and then gives it back to the attendant. So it's kind of like, you know, what's he going to say about this passage? It's not just a flipping open your Bible. It's like kind of a process. And Jesus mostly reads Isaiah 6, 1 through 2, but he includes one line from Isaiah 58, 6 in there as well. And it's very possible Jesus read both. You know, passages, maybe he read, started in chapter 58 and then kept running. You know, there's not little verses and chapter numbers, but he had to actually know where the spot was in Isaiah. Um, and so he perhaps read a, a chunk of Isaiah, and Luke is summarizing what he uh, talked about. But the speaker in Isaiah 61 is the messianic servant. There's a servant in the book of Isaiah who's going to come, and he's going to deliver God's salvation. He's God's servant that's going to do God's will. But also we hear that he's going to die. He's going to die on behalf of our sins in Isaiah 53. And this person is the Messiah, the, the Christ, the king that they've been waiting for. And the text describes what the servant will do. So let's read what Jesus read, starting at the uh, end of verse 17. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of the synagogue, of all in the synagogue, were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So after reading it, Jesus, as they would have done, he was standing, and then he sits down uh, to teach. And everyone's just waiting with anticipation, like, what is he going to say about this? And what he says is unlike anything they have heard before. Because he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's not how people would work, talk about the scrolls and teach. People are going to be, we're going to see next week how they're uh, 
impressed with his teaching authority. That he's not just saying, like, you know, here's a way to translate this, and here's what other rabbis have said, here's what this rabbi said, and, you know, here's you know, here's kind of the opposite. But he's like, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's just different than what they've heard before. And he just read from one of the prophets where the messianic servant was declaring God's salvation. And Jesus says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so, what? wow, what, what is, you know, this is crazy. You're, you're, what are you saying? So what exactly is Jesus fulfilling? What is this passage he reads from Isaiah 61 about? Well, Brian and I were together on Monday, and we got to see this really neat um, gospel presentation using three circles. Unfortunately, I have to erase this. But, um, I didn't have two whiteboards, double stacked or something. But he, uh, we saw this gospel presentation using three circles. And as I heard it, I was like, man, that, I think that fits really well um, with the passage we're looking at. And so if you have a bulletin or another piece of paper, I want you to draw this along with me. Because if you're like, you know, I don't, I want to talk about Jesus to my friends, um, but I don't really know where to start. And this could be a place to start. Um, but it can also just be, this is what I have in the back of my head, so I, I know kind of where to go next. You don't always have to use these things. I know some people feel like, you know, it's kind of like a little, feels a little scripted to get out a napkin or a little piece of paper and draw this, but you need to know in the back of your head what to say. And so the first circle we're going to look at is this circle, which we're going to label brokenness. When we look at our world, it's so... If you're drawing along with me, draw a circle around the right, right brokenness. We're looking at our world. We look all around us, and we see brokenness. Watch the news, and you see brokenness. We, I mean, we just had a very contentious political uh, election. And we had, we've seen this past year how racism coming to the surface and people trying to figure that out. And, just, and when we look out, we see conflict and war and just people not uh, working together. So we see brokenness all around our world. Some people are rich beyond our imagination. And some people can't even afford to buy food or water or housing. But the brokenness isn't only out there. We realize it's in here, too, that we see why it kind of contribute to this in small ways. And we know what brokenness feels like. It feels like guilt. It feels like shame. It feels like uh, emptiness. It feels like regret. And so uh, this is where our world is at. But that's not how it always was, because God, when he created the world... He had a perfect design to it. So I'm writing God's perfect design. God created the world without brokenness. God created the world good and right and full of the things that he wanted to be full of. And so God has a design for everything in our lives. Relationships, money, work, sex, parenting. But we have a tendency to leave God's design. So this was how God created the world. We have this tendency to leave God's design, and we go from God's perfect design to brokenness. And sin is what takes us into this place of brokenness. Sin is kind of like the underlying cause, and brokenness is like the symptom that we see in our lives. And sin is just anything uh, that is outside of God's design, anything that's against God's design. When we leave that, God's perfect design, we find ourselves in a place called brokenness. When we get into a place of brokenness, you know, when things are broke, uh, you want to fix it. And so we'll look for, you know, how am I going to fix this brokenness? Maybe I'll look to, um, you know, work. I'll try to go out here and look at work. Or maybe I'll look for it in relationships. Or maybe uh, I'll look at it in, you know, not having enough money. We look for ways, how do I fix this broken thing in my life, the brokenness of my life? And we'll, uh, we want to get out of brokenness, and we try to find our way out of it, how to fix it. 
fix it. And brokenness feels bad, the sense that my life is broken and the world is broken. But it actually does a good thing for us. It, it shows us a need for something outside of ourselves, something that can change our lives. And so God, the third circle, is Jesus. So God actually, uh, in the person of Jesus, comes down into our broken world. He takes on uh, flesh and lives in our broken world. Uh, but, and Jesus is God. He's the Son of God, fully God. Some underlining God here. And Jesus is perfect, so he doesn't sin, meaning he doesn't ever leave God's perfect design for his life. And he never contributes to the brokenness that we have. And so God, he is perfect. Um, but Jesus, because he's perfect, uh, he's able to die on the cross in our place. So all the sin that causes us brokenness and all the things that are broken in our lives, Jesus takes that on, he dies on the cross in our place. But then he also rises again. He comes back to life. So now he can actually, he's actually our king, our savior, alive, he can actually restore us to God's perfect design. But the question is, how do we uh, get from here to there? Something has to happen. Something, we have to make a decision in our lives. We have to make a change. And so we get from brokenness um, to wanting Jesus to fix that brokenness and take care of the sin in our lives. And so number one, we need to turn we need to turn from our sin that has caused the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in our lives. And we have to, number two, surrender. You could also call these repent and believe. So we need to also surrender. We need to say, Jesus, I'm, you can take care of this. You can save me from this, the sin that has caused all this. And you are the king of my life. And now I'm putting you in charge of my life instead of uh, myself. And it doesn't matter how much sin is in your life doesn't matter how much brokenness in your life, wherever you're at, you can turn to Jesus and surrender to him, and he will take care of that. Not fully in this life, but he'll begin uh, restoring us to God's perfect design. So that's why when we turn from our sin and to Jesus, um, he starts doing this. He starts restoring us to God's perfect design. He starts making us into who God meant us to be. And so the first thing that happens here is we grow. We grow in our relationship with Christ. We grow in our relationship with God. We grow more and more into who uh, God made us to be, into His perfect design. And the second thing that happens is we go. Is that we're now sent in, as we're being restored to God's perfect design. Now we're sent into this broken world um, while we're being restored. We still have brokenness in us, but God's restoring that through Jesus. But now we're sent into this broken world with this message. Um, to be messengers of his good news. You can call this whole thing right here good news. This is about Jesus. And so we're sent to the world with that message and being restored into Jesus' likeness. And so now look, let's look at the types of people mentioned in Jesus' reading of Isaiah 61. Who does he, who does he say that are going to be helped? The poor, the captives, the blind, those who are oppressed. These are people who are experiencing the brokenness of this world and their own brokenness in their life. Like maybe they got in their situation because of uh, something they did, or maybe they just got in their situation because the world is broken. And so they're experiencing this brokenness uh, in their life. So who are the poor? These are, this could be someone with no money would be considered the poor, but it's also a bigger term uh, in that culture and in Luke's gospel. It's anyone who, for whatever reason, has a low social status. 
And this is a parallel and similar to what Mary said in her song in chapter 1, verse 52. Those of humble estate. Someone could have low social status for financial reasons, but it also could be because of education or gender or occupation or family or heritage or religious purity or ethnicity and, and, and many more things. Whatever gives you a low social standing. It's anyone who finds himself on the outside of religion and outside of society. These are the people who aren't part of the in crowd. They, they're just they're on the outside. They're outcasts for whatever reason. They're left out, they're cast aside, and they're ignored by the religious and society's mainstream. And if you were in high school, you, know, you could think about it, it's, it's like, this is an honor-shame culture, and it's like, well, that's not quite our culture. But if you think of high school, that is kind of like an amplified version of uh, what we maybe experience as adults. But it's like, um, there's unpopular kids that people tend uh, to bully or make fun of or leave out. And that's who Jesus is listing here. And they're not part of the in crowd. So who are the captives? Captives often meant those in exile because they're taking captivity out of the land of Israel by another nation. Uh, but it has also spiritual overtones, as we'll see next week, who Jesus confronts. Who does he come and help after this sermon? Uh, people that are uh, have demonic influence in their life. So he's cast, freeing them from their captivity. Who are the blind? This is both a physical and spiritual component because Jesus actually heals people physically, but people are in spiritual blindness. They're in darkness and they're brought to light. Who are the oppressed? This could also refer to people in exile, um, which at this point is the whole nation of Israel because though they lived in the land God gave them, the Roman Empire had taken over and they're under this military occupation with soldiers all over the place. And so the whole nation is oppressed. But they could also refer to people uh, being oppressed because of injustice. The poor, the captives, the blind, and those who are oppressed. These are all the people experiencing the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of their own lives. They're, they're people who are hurting, suffering, and longing for things to be different. They're looking for something to fix this. And some of them, in their broken situation, they're in it because of their own sin. But some of them also didn't choose it. They just, it just happened to them. And what's common with all these people is that they've been pushed out and pushed down in some way because of whatever reason. And so what does Jesus come to do? First, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, from Isaiah 61, because he's anointed me. And we saw that the Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism, affirming him as God's Son and God's servant and Messiah. And Jesus was full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit in the wilderness, in four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Then the first verse of our passage says, Jesus returned to Galilee with the power of the Spirit, in chapter 4, verses four verse 14. And God has affirmed, blessed, and empowered Jesus by the Spirit in his life. And now he's saying, okay, what have I been anointed for? It says to proclaim liberty to the poor. And the next line in Isaiah 61 says, uh, he has sent me. To do what? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit and sent to these people who are experiencing brokenness in their lives and in this world. And, and the last line he says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this refers to a very specific uh, time in Israelite history. So we all are probably familiar with God uh, made the world in six days and then he rested on the seventh day. And in traditional Jewish history, that's on the uh, Saturday. So that's the Sabbath. Six. So every seven days there's a Sabbath. But there's where well, you're supposed to rest and not work. You're supposed to trust God. Okay, I don't need to work my life away. I just work all the time. I can trust God to provide for me. It's a, kind of a, almost a reset and a worship. Like, hey, God is in control here. But then every seven years, 
there would be a Sabbath year. So you'd work for six years, you'd plant your fields, and you'd harvest them. The seventh year, you're supposed to not plant your fields. You're supposed to give the ground uh, a year of rest, and you're supposed to trust God for the provision. But the other thing that happened was every seven years, there's a Sabbath year, and then after seven cycles of that, seven, you know, six years, Sabbath year, six years, Sabbath year. So after seven cycles of that, you've hit 49 years, so seven sevens. And then on the 50th year, they had what was called the year of Jubilee. And you may have heard that term rather than the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, but the 50th year was a Jubilee, Jubilee year. And what was supposed to be done this year was pretty radical because people, uh, there, there's these two themes, freedom and restoration. So people... Uh, first freedom, while they're living their life, they might like manage their money poorly, or maybe they somehow get flood or something wipes out their crops, and it's like, oh my gosh, like I can't sustain my family, I can't live. And so what they'd have to do is go uh, sell themselves to somebody else, like as a, another Israelite, and be like, I want to work for you, I'm like, going to be your servant, your uh, slave. And we often think slave, American history is like um, black people being taken from Africa, but it was a little different in Israelite uh, times is that they uh, were like, I you know, still wasn't a great condition of being. It's like, I'm so poor, I can't provide for my family, I have to sell myself to you and work for you. Um, and so one of the things that would happen during the Jubilee year is you're in debt and you're maybe working off this debt in, as a servant to another person. Jubilee year, debts are wiped out. You're debt free now. You have freedom. You're released from your debt slavery. Second restoration meant so there's freedom restoration. Restoration meant if you lost your land and like you had to sell it off to somebody so you could survive, on the Jubilee year, you get your land back. And so maybe you lost your land for 10 years or 5 years or 20 years. Jubilee year, you get the land back. And so it's this restoration. But also, if your family got split off because we have to survive by like being servants of other people, you get restored to your family too because everyone's relieved of their debt. You all go get your land back. And so now there's restoring. And this has comes out of uh, the Exodus. In the Exodus, God rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and then he takes them to a land that he's giving them. So it's not like, you guys don't own this land. I own this land. I'm giving it to you as a gift. And so, and it got split up between the families, the tribes, the clans. So every family had a piece of this, because there's promise to them. And so if you lose it, it's like God doesn't want just, you know, a couple of people who are doing well to kind of accumulate all the land. You know, every 50 years, it gets given back to the families. And so it's, that's the one reason it's given back. But then why they're not supposed to be having each other as slaves is because I took you out of slavery in Egypt. You were slaves, and I freed you. Now you're not supposed to return each other back to that situation. And so they were liberated. And the year of Jubilee would be announced by this ram's horn on the Day of Atonement, which was a big day. They did a sacrifice for the sins of the whole nation. So it's like you guys are all freed of your uh, debt of your sin. But also now, woo, Jubilee here, all these other debts are getting canceled too, and you're getting restored. And there's really no evidence in history that the Jubilee year was ever practiced. And the Bible never says, like, and this day, you know, this year, we did the Jubilee. Um, but because, I mean, you can see it's a radical thing, but it's something God instituted with this radical grace built right in to the covenant. Because it's like, well, what do you do to get rid of your debt? Nothing. Just just happens, just gone. And I get, what did you do to get your land back? Nothing. God, you just got given back to me because God said that's how it should be. And so it's this freeing people and restoring humanity. And because it's such a powerful image, it gets taken up in the prophets as, okay, this is going to be a picture of God's salvation. When God saves us, when his kingdom comes, 
It's going to look like this. Freedom and restoration like the year of Jubilee. All you people are in the debt of sin to God. Debts are canceled. Forgiveness. And also, I'm going to be restoring you to how you're supposed to be. So think about this. Debts are canceled. Jesus paid for it. And I'm restoring you to what was supposed to be. And I'm promising you uh, a new heavens and a new earth. The year of Jubilee is a fresh start. So we think about it. Who's going to be most excited about the year of Jubilee? Probably it might be hard to be excited if you're like one of the people who's kind of accumulated a lot of servants and a lot of land. But if you are like in a terrible situation, I'm in so much debt. I've lost my family. I've lost my land. And you're going to be like counting down the days. Your Jubilee is here. And I get, this whole debt is gone. I messed up my life. But this is a fresh start. People who are living in the brokenness of their own sinful decisions are going to be like, Your Jubilee, the penalty for all my foolish actions, is just taken care of by grace. And I'm freed and restored. And this is what Jesus says I've been anointed to do to bring the year of the Lord's favor. And the people he's talking to have a hard time swallowing this extravagant claim by a hometown kid. Isn't this Joseph's son? He goes, wow, you're fulfilling this? And it's, Isn't this Joseph's son? Like, he grew up here. What is he talking about? How is he going to do this? And Jesus is aware of what people are, are saying. Uh, so he anticipates what they'll ask. Do you hear what we heard you do in Capernaum? You know, so, or physician, heal yourself, which is kind of this little proverb, which basically means like, okay, we've heard you heal other people. Now heal, heal your own people. Show us how you can you can do this stuff in front of us. And they're saying, like, we've heard you did it in Capernaum, but let's see, we've only heard it, how we want to see proof that you can actually deliver on what you're saying here. And you're Jesus, you're lived up the block from us. But he says, I'm not going to be put to the test like this. So he reminds them of these two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who lived in a bad time during Israel when the people had gone astray, they're suffering the consequences of their sin, so there's, there's drought and there's famine. And Basically, he says, okay, you know, just like Elijah, there's a lot of widows in Israel. But where did Elijah go? He went and helped this Gentile lady outside of Israel. There was a lot of lepers in Israel, but who did Elisha go to? Naaman, he helped this Gentile. So it's like there's a lot of Israelites suffering, but who did God send these prophets to help? Non-Israelites. And Jesus' point is, if God's people don't listen to God's prophets, then God will send them elsewhere, even to Gentiles. And the theme of the prophets is that their message was rejected. They're saying, we need to turn back. We need to fix this thing. We need to, we, you know, look at the broken situation we're in. We need to turn back to God, turn back to how he told us to live. But they are often not listened to. And the people catch his point. They're like, okay, you're saying, like, we're stubborn and we're not going to listen. And you're going to, you know, this message is for other people. And they get all mad. They kind of form this mob. And they are taking them out to this hill, this, like, cliff. And they're going to throw them down it. And stone them. You know, they're taking the law into their own hands. Like the way you stone someone is you usually throw them off a big hill and you'd be throwing head sized boulders down on them to, to stone them, which sounds pretty terrifying. And how does but Jesus, you know, in the last passage we saw, the devil said, Why don't you throw yourself off the top of this building and see if God protects you? And now he's standing at the edge of a cliff or a hill being about to be thrown off. What happened? It says he just walks through the crowd. Like Jesus refused to put God to the test when the devil tempted him, but then God actually does protect him when the moment comes. And all of this creates certainty for people. That's what Luke's goal is in writing. You know, if people, we may think, how could Jesus possibly be who he said he was? You know, the King of Israel, the Messiah, the Savior. People didn't even like him. They got him killed. You know, later on, he's actually going to get put on a cross and die. And so it's like you're thinking. 
as you're like in the first century reading this, or maybe even now, like this guy didn't sound very successful. But Jesus is saying, this is how it's always been. You know, the prophets, people didn't listen to the message, and I'm bringing you a message, and you're not going to listen to me. I know people aren't going to listen to me. And the angel Gabriel, or Simeon, told that to Mary, and John the Baptist said, you know, Jesus is going to sift people. Jesus' message is both an announcement and an invitation. And you know, not everyone's going to accept that. They're not going to be part of the year in the Lord's favor. And Jesus is going to be divisive. And all the people Jesus came for, those people we listed, the poor, captives, blind, the uh, oppressed, these are people who are unpopular. They're people with broken lives, and they know it. And we need to see ourselves as these people. We need to see ourselves as them. People who need God's favor. People who are in deep debt, who were spiritually blind, who were uh, struggling with life and spiritually. The people who missed out on Jesus' message of God's favor were those who thought that they already had it because of how good they are. Like you just think of the religious teachers or people that didn't really weren't interested in Jesus. Like they weren't interested because like, well, we already have God's favor because of how righteous and how good we are and how we're keeping all the rules. Those are the people that actually missed out on it. They didn't see themselves as broken, like those people over there. You know, those are people that have their messed up lives. But not us, like God's favor is coming to us. They didn't see themselves as needy, weak, and sinful. And the year of the Lord's favor, if you think about this for us, it's a year of reversals. You know, this is what the kingdom looks like. The specific year of the Lord's favor was debtors become debt-free, slaves become free, land that was lost is restored, Families that are broken up are brought back together. And in the year of Jubilee, the worse off you were, the better it would sound. The greater your reversal. And Jesus is telling people, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's a kingdom of reversal. Sinners are made saints. The poor are made rich. The oppressed are set free. The blind can see. The low are exalted and lifted up. The empty are filled. The hungry are satisfied. The thirsty are quenched. Those who are alone belong, the dead are raised, the far brought near, the lost are found. He's saying, this is a kingdom of reversals. If you have a, you're in a terrible situation, look, you're the one's favor is coming. I'm gonna, this whole thing's going to be flipped around if you will just be a part of it. It's all totally grace, God's undeserved favor. It's radical grace built into Israel's laws. And this is the kingdom of God. And he's saying, this has been fulfilled. Do you want to be a part of it? You need help from the outside. The first step is admitting that you need it and looking for the help from the outside. And you need Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's what the message of the kingdom is about. And God's favor is for those who admit they're far from him, for those who admit they fall short, for those who admit they owe a debt they can never pay, who desire healing of their brokenness. You may feel like, you know, God's favor rests on me when I've got things together. I'm confident, you know, some, some of the things we read up here, you know, when I you know, show myself that, you know, I can handle this, I'm responsible, I'm confident, I don't need other people, I don't need to bother other people. God's favor rests on me because I'm the person who gives help, not the person who asks for help. But if there's one way I want to summarize, not necessarily this passage, but how it applies to us, and how it would have been, how Jesus is wanting people to hear it is this. Right? Good news sounds good when you know how badly you need it. Good news sounds good when you know how badly you need it. And the worse off you admit you are, the better the gospel is going to sound. And the issue is that we need to be able to accept, acknowledge, and admit that we're desperately in need of God's favor. We're broken and need someone to fix us in our lives. And that someone isn't us. We need someone from the outside. We need God to come down into our lives and bring the freedom, restoration, and healing to our brokenness that only he can bring. And we need to be able and willing to ask for help. 
to say, God, I need you. Help, please. And the issue is that we often want to be self-sufficient, or at least appear that we are, and we don't want to admit that we have problems or needs or imperfections, deficiencies, and last of all, sin. And if our goal is self-sufficiency, we'll not enter or experience the kingdom of God, or we'll experience it at a very low level. If we're saying, I take care of my problems, I don't burden others with my problems, I can handle my problems myself, thank you very much, no, I'm sure, I do not need help. No, then we'll miss out. Or perhaps you would describe it more positively. I'm responsible, I'm independent, I'm grown up. I, I should be able to handle the things going on here. And that just don't, wouldn't work, doesn't work in the kingdom of God. There's this book called Safe People. And it's like, how do you identify safe people in your life? And what does it look like for us to be safe people? And uh, it says the advantage of self-sufficiency is that you get to avoid all the uncontrollable problems and risks that needy people can't get away from. And then it'll list some examples. You don't have to experience your incompleteness, which is painful. You don't have to go to the trouble of finding people to love you. You don't have to show other people the hurting and perfect parts of yourself. You don't have to look someone in the eye and say, I need you. You don't have to risk asking others to comfort and support you. You don't have to humbly receive what they offer in gratitude. And you don't have to do it again and again and again. So grace goes where need is uncovered. Grace goes where need is uncovered. And often we want to hide our needs and show, you know, I've got this. You know, I want to put on a front. I want to show you people that I'm, everyone around me, like, I've got this. I don't need help. I can give you help. I don't know. I don't necessarily need help. And even if we complain and somebody offers us help, we're like, oh, no, no, no. You know, all the things we listen, I don't want to bother you. I don't want to seem incompetent. I don't want to seem like I can't handle this thing. And God's grace goes where need is uncovered. And God's grace is for failures, sinners, outcasts, those far from him, those lost, those who don't belong. And how do we feel when we ask for help? When we listen to those things, we feel weak, we feel needy, we feel incompetent, we feel unprepared, we feel irresponsible, we feel ashamed, embarrassed, we feel like failures. But the reality is that if we are in need of help, the reality is that we are in need of help, sorry, and it's in asking for help that we can actually come to God admitting our need. And we may think, as I said at the beginning, that spiritual growth and maturity is measured by the fact that I need less help. You know, I've just gotten better and I need less help now. We, we will know more, we'll have more skills, we'll be more capable of handling things that come our way, but it's actually the opposite. That maturity is measured by your ability to ask for help from God and for, uh, from others. And to admit you have a need before God and other people and that you need someone outside of yourself to meet it. And until we're able to do that, our relationship with God and with others will remain shallow and guarded. We're just guarding ourselves. I don't want people to see me in that way, or God to see me in that way. We'll feel that we need to handle things on our own, and so we'll put on a show for other people and for God. So I want you to think about this. What is a need you have right now? What's something that's just feels like it's out of control or you know, broken in your life or it's unmanageable, you're just overwhelmed. What is the need you have right now? And you'll write it down uh, if you, or keep it in your head, write it down. What is the need you have right now? Maybe, and not just one, maybe a whole list of them. 
then I want to give you a challenge, something to encourage you with this week. Ask God for help with that, and ask someone else for help with that. Ask you know someone in our church or some you know friend you have or somebody could be a neighbor that's like I know they you know this skill I need this thing fixed. Um, so ask God to help with that this week. Ask someone else. That helps us practice. Like I can show that I'm don't know what I'm doing here or I'm out of my depth. So I just need support in, in this. I need guidance. I need help. And the beauty of a community that really believes what Jesus is saying here that I've come for these people for you with broken lives. And that's a year of the Lord's favor. It's good news to you. Is that when we believe that, we can be safe for each other. We can actually start uh, to do life with one another. We can actually start helping one another and getting needs met. The neat thing about Christian community isn't that we serve other people. It's the way we serve other people is unique. There's lots of organizations that serve people. There's very few organizations that are good at asking for help <laughs> to each other and asking for help from God. Uh, that's a very unique thing about Christian community. We know we fall short, that we're messed up and we're broken, but we aren't afraid of it. We aren't afraid to show it to other people and to ask for help with those areas where it's like, I'm hurting, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I don't know what I'm doing here, God, and saying it to other people. So let's pray that we would be people uh, that take this message out. And when you interact with people in your life, brokenness is at the surface. Maybe... Maybe you don't know what the sin is that caused it, but this is where people are living in brokenness. Like, yeah, this, you know, when you hear people complain, uh, or you know, when you complain, we tend to complain a lot. Like, how's it going? Oh, you know, I got this going on. People are revealing what's the hurting and broken in their lives. And then it's like we can connect with people in compassion and empathy. And we say, you know, there's something, the way I think about this that would really, maybe it would be helpful to you. I heard it this week, or, you know, heard it at some point. I'm like, would you mind if I shared it with you? And we'll. We're going to use this again as a couple other passages that fits really well in this and you can have this in your head. Let's pray that we would be people who live this good news and speak it to others. God, would you let us not be afraid of our neediness, our brokenness, our weakness and sin. That we would come into the light, as First John says, and fellowship with you and each other. Just as any prayer. Amen.